QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. This is QC Pod. I'm Jason Tuga. QC Pod features the people, projects, movements, and ideas that make up the Queen's College community. To learn more, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. Today, on QC Pod, we welcome Amir Kafaji. Kafaji is a New York City-based freelance journalist, essayist, performer, and activist. His writing's been featured in Vice, Bloomberg, City Limits, Jacobin, and many more publications. His many distinctions include the New Economics Reporting Fellowship and the Asian American Writers Workshop Open City Fellowship. Kafaji earned a BA and an MA in Urban Studies right here at Queens College. As a performer, he's appeared in Ping Chong and Company's Beyond Sacred, Voices of Muslim Identity, as well as Gun Country, a Houses on the Moon theater company production. Welcome to QC Pod, Amir. It's really great to have this opportunity to talk. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're a lifelong New Yorker, born and raised in Jackson Heights, Queens. As your bio says, into a working-class Muslim immigrant family. Your mother's Puerto Rican and your father's an immigrant from Egypt. You describe yourself as an Arab Rican, and you describe your work as exploring the intersections of labor, race, class, immigration, and urban development. To start things off, I think it would be great for people to hear a little bit about how you made your way from doing urban studies in an academic setting to making it your beat as a journalist. I always wanted to be a storyteller in one way or another. Um, when I was younger, I wanted to be a filmmaker. It's an aspiration I still kind of have. Um, but when I went to when I started going to LaGuardia Community College, I took a course in broadcast journalism and. I always had an affinity for journalism and something I was always interested in. And I really got a a lot. I really got interested in journalism at LaGuardia. Um, And I I got into it. I liked the idea of it. Um, I liked the idea of uncovering things and and exposing things that are not necessarily um, well known and and trying to give it uh, give it light. Uh, so when I was at LaGuardia Community College, I had a friend and that friend was taking another journalism course and they had the Associated Press style guide. And I thought that was very interesting. So, but it was something I never thought I, I could do. It didn't seem viable, especially when you're going to a community college and you're coming from like a working class urban background that I come from. Uh, it, it just wasn't, it didn't seem like a viable option, but I, and so that's one side of it, but I always had an interest in cities. Um, and I always had an interest in what, what made cities work. And I was always, I found out about the Queens College Urban Studies Program while I was at LaGuardia Community College. And that was something that I thought was really interesting and something that I was really digging. Uh, so then I kind of had this far-fetched idea. I said, you know, maybe if I study cities, it would make me a better reporter. Rather than going to journalism school straight up, if I went and studied cities a little more, I could have a a stronger background on the things that I wanted to report. I had a little more of a holistic 
uh, understanding of, of the beat that I wanted to write about. Uh, you know, if I just went, went to, to straight journalism school, I don't think I would have had that bag of knowledge that I do in terms of how I approach stories, where I'm looking for stories, how I find stories, all that kind of stuff. If I had just gone to journalism school, I would have learned the who, what, why, when, there, and all the and where, and all that kind of um, journalism lingo, but not necessarily have kind of that academic background that I was seeking. So anyways, I went there, but again, it was all vague and there was no real plan, it was just an idea. Um, but then I decided I can turn term papers that I was writing into articles and that was something that that I that I thought would be an interesting idea because I would approach you know when you do research and you're in academia you're academia you, you spend so much time and you have to, so much energy devoting to these um, to these academic papers and this thing you do research and oftentimes when you're in academia your research you become the spokesperson just for that one thing that you did and then you spent 10 years working on that research but I can do little research assignments with with journalism, right? I can do a 1,500, 2,000 word research paper. You know, that's how I kind of approached it. And then I went, and then QC Voices was also a great opportunity to see, to get that feedback, to see if I actually had what it takes to be a writer, because I didn't see myself as a writer. Um, so it gave me that practice and it gave me that confidence to kind of get, to expose myself to criticism, to learn what what would be, um, what would be, I guess for lack of a better word, what would be uh, submittable to an editor, right? What, what are editors looking for? So it kind of gave me that foundation in terms of writing and giving me that confidence to then go about it and say, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And, you know, funny enough, I would, right off the bat, I would submit stuff to the New Yorker magazine thinking that... <laughs> <laughs> I would find an editor to the New Yorker and say, why not? And, you know, my partner, who's a, who's a, a teacher, but also a writer, um, she's always very nervous about submitting. That's always, you know, rejection. So I didn't give a shit about rejection because I thought, what do I got to lose? I got to break into this business one way or another. So I'm going to go all the way to the highest enchilada of journalism, like the New York Times or the New Yorker magazine. Then I worked my way down to lesser outlets and then, now I'm working my way back up. But does that answer your question? Definitely. And you started publishing while you were still a student, right? I, I started, the one of the first outlets that really took me uh, was The Independent, which independent, uh, which is a free newspaper in New York City. It's a under, not necessarily underground, but a, a journalist-supported network. They don't pay, but they gave me my first bylines which i thought was really helpful so and that gave me confidence and then i thought i wanted to write commentary more than journalism because i have a lot i'm very opinionated so i would submit to counterpunch magazine uh, and then i would submit to the hampton institute so but what really gave me my first paying gig in journalism was i wrote an op-ed criticizing um governor andrew como for his uh, role in, in privatizing public housing and I submitted that to City Limits. And Jarrett Murphy, who's the editor of City Limits, emailed me and he was very gracious. He said, this is interesting, but could you make this more of a journalistic piece? And I said, yeah, okay. And he was gonna give me 500 bucks for it. And that was like, 
wow, okay, now I'm going to finally start getting paid for my writing. And I have an opportunity that I can't let pass, you know, I couldn't pass up in City Limits. I, I love City Limits. So I got the AP style book. I started reading more and more journalistic pieces just so I can get a backing, a background of what journalism looks like. And I kind of taught myself what it was, what, what it's like to be a journalist. Sorry for all the noise upstairs. But, um, yeah, that's so. I was to answer your question. Yes, I was as a, when I was a student. I started publishing. I think it, it the style this is how I this is this is what I know how to write. It's I, I don't purposely make it that way, but I write about oftentimes I write about things that I really believe in and care about. And my sometimes my sources are people that I become friends with. And I know that's kind of like a taboo in journalism, but I don't I don't necessarily agree with the fact that a journalist has to be removed. I, it's funny because we went in, in the 60s and 70s, it was a trend of putting the journalist inside the action, right? Journalists were becoming part of the story. And then we moved, we went backwards into like this straight journalism where you're, you're trying to pretend to be neutral. And I don't think anybody is neutral. But I feel like I care about, if I really care about these issues and I really want these issues, um, so let's say something like uh, 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 urban rezoning, that I feel that's going to lead to displacement of people. I care about those people that are going to be displaced. So I'm not going to write an article that's going to be very neutral about it. Um, I'm going to write an article that I feel is fair to those who who are going to experience the hardships of what's about to happen. Um, even with stories where, like I did a story about uh, Florida greyhound racing, which is about to be extinct. You know, uh, it's one of the largest places and left in the largest places in the country where greyhound racing is still active. And there's 11 tracks, I believe, in, in Florida that are about to be closed. And although I have no love for greyhound racing and, and the pain that the animals go through, I had a, I genuinely felt bad for the people who are going to lose their jobs, their livelihood, the people who would go to the track every day and the community that they're going to lose. So I had a lot of I felt a lot of love and compassion for those people. And I wanted that to be expressed in the story. I didn't want to write, there's enough stories about how terrible greyhound racing is, but there's not enough stories about, well, who are these people that, who've built a life around it and what are they going to lose? You know, what that's going to look like. And I thought that was sad, even though I don't, I think I don't like greyhound racing. I think it should be um, an obsolete sporting, uh, sporting ritual. I feel like we should also care about these people. This should be something that should just go. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to, I bet on a greyhound racing, just uh, on a greyhound, just to see what that was like and, you know, experience it with them. So I, I want it. If I could put myself in the story, I feel like I could put a reader in the story.
That makes a lot of sense. It's also kind of heartening to hear you talk about the fact that you're writing about a sport that you don't necessarily approve of in, in ethical terms, but you still have a view that takes in the what it means for people. And, and rather than dismissing those people, right, you're actually giving them some kind of voice in the culture. Whereas if, you know, articles that just say greyhound racing is terrible, those people are kind of just erased, you know? Well, there was, you know, with that, there's a lot of nuance with that, that I feel was getting ignored in the mainstream, but it was also getting ignored by the animal rights people. Um, West Palm Beach, Florida, which was the track I, I covered is, Although it has one, it's one of the richest places in the country, but it's also one of the poorest places in the country. Um, West Palm Beach, Florida, is you know there's parts of it that you, you would be shocked that this is still the United States, and they have a, lar- a very large black population in West Palm Beach that has no access to any sort of economic um, upward mobility, uh, other than the Greyhound track. So the Greyhound track was was this economic engine for a lot of young black men who their only other option was Walmart or McDonald's. And at the Greyhound track, they could become trainers and they can rise up the ranks. It was the only way that they could truly, only place where many of them could start off just, there was some, they call them walkers. They would just walk the dog from the kennel to the track and then they can rise up to trainer and then they can rise up to other kind of manager. And there's all these other titles that they can reach and make more money. And it also gave them a lot of meaning. It gave them, um, you know, Greyhound for, for, however you feel about it, there's a, there's, there's a tradition there that you're not going to have a McDonald's, right? You feel, they felt general connection to the, to the animals that they were caring for. um, And they were working with. And when the Greyhound racing excuse me, the Greyhound track closes, they're going to lose the only thing that they have in their lives that gave them some sort of meeting. And I talked to an animal rights activist woman and I asked her, how do you feel? How do you, feel about that, about these men that are going to lose their jobs. And she told me quite literally that there is plenty of jobs in West Palm Beach. They can work in McDonald's. This was what she said to me on the phone. I didn't put that in the piece, but I remember feeling very angered by that because this was this rich woman who was kind of, she was, she loved, you know, she loved animals more than she loved people. It sounded like, and I, I actually take the opposite view. I love people more. I love animals, but I really like to prioritize people. So I thought that was, you know, I don't know how you can balance that. You know. Hmm. And why would you leave something like that out of a story? I, that, to me, that wasn't what the story was about. I didn't want to make it a story where it's the animal rights people versus the, you know, you know I wanted the piece to be about what's going to happen to this, these people and what it means to them, you know. Yeah, your work really does tend to be about the people involved in and affected by the political circumstances you're writing about. Street vendors, taxi drivers, home care workers, laundry workers. I could go on, actually. You've written a lot about it. And I'm just wondering, what is it you'd like people to know about what's happening with essential workers in New York City right now? I think what what the pandemic has really shown was the how dependent we are on the service industry and how we take for granted the work that mostly working class people of color do in this country. Um, saying that, 
and I and there's been a lot of praise. People at seven o'clock were clapping their hands for for a lot of these essential workers. But what people missed was that these essential workers are not get, are being economically exploited before the pandemic, and it's only been magnified during the pandemic. Um, some of these workers, like taxi taxi drivers, have not been able to recover during the pandemic. Although people praise essential workers, these workers are actually they're going extinct. I think what we're missing is the the overall economic exploitation that exists in our country, and how these workers do not get paid what they're putting in, and they're and what I believe is actually they're they're getting ripped off, and and, and they should be getting what they they should be getting their fair fair share. Um, I wrote about delivery workers, and just the other day I I went to I like to pick up my food whenever I have the ability. I don't like to order in often. I don't use Postmate or Uber Eats or anything like that. And I went to a, a Thai restaurant to get food and I was talking to this delivery guy. It was packed with delivery people. I was one of the only people going to pick up their food. There was mostly delivery people there. And this guy said, and this was in Queens, just two blocks from my house, he's bringing the food to Brooklyn. He was bringing the food to Brooklyn. And I couldn't believe that, right? And he's not only getting paid four or five bucks out of that delivery. And he has to constantly work 10, 11 hours shifts in order to make some decent money. Um, so I think where we're, these workers were often ignored and I'm afraid that they're gonna be continued to be ignored once this pandemic and the, and the res- is over. And I feel like their voices need to not just be heard, but there needs to be policy that addresses many of their issues. Delivery workers' rights, um, rather than their independent contractors, I think they should be unionized. Um, taxi drivers, there many of them are, have been have killed themselves because they can't. They they they've been put into these debt traps. Um, and my father used to be a cab driver, so I have a lot of affinity for that. Um, sanitation workers, uh, we often don't think about sanitation workers, or if we do, we think it's a very high paying job, at least in New York. But in places like New Orleans, sanitation workers weren't even making minimum wage. And many of them were working 11, 12 hour shifts. And many of them got sick with COVID. And some died prior to COVID just from accidents that occurred at the at the um, at, at the sanitation yard. So these workers who've been exploited are continuing to get exploited. I'm hoping that through my writing, we can somehow expose that exploitation and try to find ways to stop it. When you look back over your career so far, are there particular stories that stand out to you as having had that kind of effect where they really uh, had an effect on changing policy or changing lives? Funny that, you know, funny that you mentioned that. A piece that I wrote recently for Documented in New York uh, about there's a law currently that's been passed in the New York State Senate called the Protect Your Courts Act, Protect Our Courts Act, which is going to prevent ICE and other immigration officials for making arrests at New York courthouses. It's been passed by both the House, the Assembly and the New York State Senate, but Governor Cuomo has yet to sign it. Now, many of the courts are closed, especially housing court, but when housing court does open, you can imagine that there's going to be a flood of eviction cases and many immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, are going to be forced to go to court to defend themselves. Um, the Protect Your Courts Act has not been signed, so it's putting them at even a greater risk of destroying their lives as if getting evicted is not already bad enough. They can get arrested at, at the courthouses. So that hasn't been passed. It's sitting on the governor's desk. He hasn't passed it. 
um, time's running out till the courts open again. So I wrote a piece, you know, kind of exposing the fact that the governor has not signed this bill. It wasn't getting much attention prior to me writing this, but now this has spurred a movement to um, push to, for him to sign it. And, the, you know, the piece was widely shared by immigration advocate organization, and they just had a rally a few days ago in Albany demanding that he sign this bill. So, and my editor just sent me the, a link to it and saying that this was a direct result of that article being written. So that, that was something that made me, you know, that makes me happy when I see something like that. I know that I'm having an impact because I come from an activist background. I want my stories to have some sort of policy, um, a, a poli make policy change and, and for the better. That's got to be satisfying. You know, it's really obvious that you're a person who loves talking to people, and it just makes me think about your approach to sources, and I'm really curious to hear how you find your sources, how you relate to your sources, um, when are they friendly, are there some that are adversarial, how do you deal with that? I love Jimmy Breslin, I think he's fascinating, I saw a documentary on HBO about him, and just the way he approached journalism was very interesting to me. And one of the things that he did was he immersed himself 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 in the community, right? So if you go to 8th Avenue, work with me here, right? We're going to go on a journey now. So if you go to 8th Avenue, right? Right in the middle of 8th Avenue on 42nd Street, you got the New York Times building. And it's this monolithic building, right? That just stands there. But all around you on 8th Avenue, it's one of my favorite places in New York City. There's a lot going on. There's street hustlers. You got the Garment District. You got you got the, the last remaining porn theaters, porn shops left in the Times Square. It's a very, it's happening place. There's a lot going on. But there's an immediate separation between that and what's happening in, you know, on the street, between the New York Times and what's happening on the street. Well, um, Jimmy, someone like Jimmy Breslin would go to the local bars and he would, he was a Queens guy. He lived in Forest Hills. He would stay, he, he kept his, his nose, uh, he, he kept one foot James in the journalism room and one foot no. in the street, no, that's a, making no, sure that that's he made connections and friends. And he had a lot of friends in a lot of different uh, places. He wasn't in an ivory tower. He was really much, Jimmy he, Breslin? he was a New York, he was okay. New York in a lot of ways. And okay. I try to emulate that as much as possible. I think I'm a street guy. I, li I really like to be out and about. I'd rather do work in a coffee shop than stay, sit at home. I'd rather be um, amongst people. I like to have a wide variety of friends in a lot of different kind of places. I don't want to be just stuck in, in one place and know the same kinds of people and only be around the same people. I want to be out where the action is. Um, Jimmy Breslin was a guy like that. Uh, I try to okay. approach journalism through the lens as if I'm there, or, um, which I am much of the time, but I, I try to approach, see, see it through the viewpoint of somebody who's immersed in it, not somebody who's removed from it, not somebody who's parachuting into it. I try to stay amongst it. So I end up meeting all kinds of people that I might not interact with them on a particular story at any particular given time, but every now and then my interactions and friendships with some of those people bleed into a story and give me fresh ideas and, and and give me a new perspective on something that I wasn't aware of. I'll give you a great example. I wrote a story about mosques and COVID-19 and how mosques were, um, how were they functioning? It's called keeping the faith and how they were functioning during that pandemic. And a lot of mosques are small storefront mosques and they were financially struggling to stay open as the pandemic, um, with the pandemic, a lot of them didn't get any kind of 
PPP loans or anything like that. So um, I knew a guy named Sam. He's an Egyptian-American. I knew him maybe for 10 years. Sammy's an interesting character. He was He's homeless. He lost all his money gambling. Um, he lost his passport. He's kind of just stuck in America now. But I'm Egyptian. He's Egyptian. So we had a lot of you know common. And we became very close friends. I met him at a Starbucks. And Sammy was a source on two stories for me. So one, he was a story about the people who find community at Starbucks that I wrote for Bloomberg. And then another story in which the mosque that he, he, he goes to a mosque, a mosque in, um, in the wholesale district on 20 something street, I think it was 25th street. And he had a lot of connections with the, with the congregation there, with the imam. And it was something, it was a refuge for him as a homeless person. This mosque was very important. To him. So he was like my gateway into that world and introduced me to all these other people that worked at the mosque and people who used the mosque as uh, it was the last place for them to go when there was nowhere else to go. That mosque was very important to his life. So it allowed me, my relationship with him allowed me to understand him a lot better than if I would, had just parachuted in and found him as a source and he helped me make connections and then bye-bye, see you later. Mm. It wasn't like that with Sammy. Um, is there any of this clear? Like, does it make sense? Yeah. You're making real connections with people over time. Yeah, exactly. Beyond just reporter source and he's become he he became a very important um person in terms of what's happening in in the in in that world um you know and he i i want to write a story about how casinos and homeless people have kind of have this symbiotic relationship and he he's also going to help me he's going to help me on this on that story as well so there's if i i try to make those kind of friendships lasting friendships and, and if it helps me understand that world better, which I'm always trying to understand as much as possible, I think it helps the reader understand that world in a much more genuine way. Um, another story I did about peep shows. I think peep shows are amazing places. I love that whole world. Um, I spent years just f- with this vague idea of I wanted to see what's going on in the peep. I want to somehow do some sort of story, I don't know, from a creative point of view, just fictional or, or documentary or something, just wanted to understand that world much better. So I would constantly go and, and, and explore the peep shows of Times Square up on the edges, the western edges of Times Square. And I made friends with people over years just through the peep shows. And then when I finally came time to do a story for Curbed about the last peep shows of Times Square, I had this wealth of knowledge just of exploring the peep shows on my own, building relationships and friendships with people. And I was able to get a better sense of what's happening on the ground and what those peep shows mean to people. Because I, as if I, it was as if I was one of those people in the peep shows that, that, that uh, depended on, the, on that place. Because there was a place that I genuinely cared for. And I genuinely cared for the people who used it. Another story I did was about um, prostitution, uh, flushing massage parlors. And, and massage parlor prostitution in Flushing, Queens. I had worked years building relationships with a lot of these women, um, buying them coffee, taking them out to eat, building friendships that that otherwise that most journalists never had that access to. And it, it allowed me to have a richer story and a richer perspective. Uh, I would work the door of one of the massage parlors. Just some, just I would be there nightly, just building relationships with people and, and building that trust and I think that's very important. If you don't have trust, I don't think 
there's a general there people have are often suspicious of journalists but if you can build a trust and you can build a relationship with some of these people that that you're trying to to write about and, and some of these worlds you're trying to explore i think it gives you the right to write about that story i think you you have a right to be there otherwise there's a lot of journalists that come in kind of like as colonizers almost that are just trying to colonize a story and then leaving but if you're there you're putting in that time work and energy to go beyond journalism to build those relationships and you can't always do that but if you can do that i think it gives you the right to tell that story now of course cuny falls within your beat it's definitely urban affairs and you've done your share of cuny coverage over the years I'm curious to hear about some of those stories so I've written the most recent thing I wrote for Descent Magazine. It was, it was recent. It was about like a year and a half ago. Was about um, the Excelsior. Well, I can't even pronounce Excelsior, Excelsior Scholarship, and how what a massive scam that is. Uh, I was to give you a little background. I was an activist in CUNY almost my entire time. I I was in CUNY, um, and I was one of the, I would. I was fighting for, and me and others, of course, were fighting for a free CUNY, making it free like it was. It was once, was it was a free university from most of its existence. Um, I know. I, I, I. But every it's. I'm happy that it went from something that was impossible ten years ago to something that now that's on the table, but. The Excelsior Scholarship was what such a massive um, diversion from that task. Although it claimed to make college free again, in actuality, it was a massive giveaway to middle class white students and a massive tuition hike for working class students because it allowed because the bracket was you can apply for the program and you had you could be between whatever percentage to one hundred thousand dollars a year. It incentivized students that otherwise wouldn't have gone to CUNY to say, okay, I can go to CUNY or SUNY. It was for both CUNY and SUNY. Um, I can go to SUNY or CUNY and that would actually take seats away from a lot of working class students because you, what you did was you created um, this, this um, subsidy program for middle class and you took away a lot of those seats that would have probably went to working class students who would have gone to CUNY, but you also raised the price of what that was going to cost. And it's the weird thing. This, the state raises the tuition and then what they do is they pay for this, this um, program uh, that I don't know how you can raise the tuition of the same program that you're going to pay for. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it also that that free tuition program, so-called free tuition program, was not designed for the for working class students by the fact that most working class students of color go to school part time, and they were thus not eligible for that program. Um, yeah, and full time is defined as fifteen credits for that. Yes. Oh my God! You got to take a certain number of classes with a certain number of credits. Um, God forbid if you took a class, some, there's some classes that are only one credit courses. That wouldn't have been covered by the program if you took that. Um, if you got below a certain GPA, you would have been, you, you would have, uh, um, been kicked off that program. So, and, and then again, it raises the price of CUNY. CUNY was going, is getting increased every year. I forget by what number because they're constantly changing. But every year there's some sort of increase. 
Um, at the same time, they cut funding from CUNY over and SUNY as well. And they cut staff and they cut uh, certain programs. So it was, it was a, to me, it was a giveaway to people who could afford to pay for CUNY and SUNY. And it was taking away from people that, that have, hard, have hard enough time getting into CUNY or SUNY in the first place. And by the way, I don't like to include SUNY because many working class students of color cannot go to SUNY. If you wanted to go to a SUNY school, you have to pay for, for dorm. Uh, you have to dorm. You can't afford to dorm. I didn't come from a family that you could afford to dorm. My only options were CUNY. But you know what the sad part is? The CUNY story is the same. It's always the same. They're going to try to cut it. They're trying to get rid of departments. They're trying to cut staff. It's, it's for the past 20 years or 30 years, the CUNY story has been the same. It's an underfunded or defunded school, uh, university system that is doing so much good by getting more black and Latino students to, uh, to graduate than probably any other university system in the country, but yet is constantly being underfunded and undervalued. And I think it's time that we, the converse, to me, the only story that's worth mentioning now about CUNY is the fight for a free CUNY. And I think that's where we should be going. CUNY should be a free university, should be a public university with not just a free university, but guaranteed access to every student who applies for it. That conversation's starting to be back on the table, a free CUNY or an open CUNY. We'll see. It's hard to predict anything right now, but uh, people are talking about it. Now, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and hear about your relationship with the streets. It's clear you just love the city. You love walking around the city. You love being out there. You love digging in. And I'm wondering what the city looks like through your eyes, what it feels like. Are you always looking for a story? That came from organizing, interesting enough. That kind I, you know, my partner it drives her nuts because everywhere I go, people say hello to me and I'm always talking to people and I know everybody and there's, <laughs> we can't go anywhere without some sort of privacy because it's like I'm a little, I'm like a mirror flushing. Everyone knows me. Um, but uh, from organizing, I was always looking for a way to do, you know, community organizing and some sort of angle to approach community organizing. Um, and that kind of same sense uh, I have from organizing, I kind of, that same approach I brought with me to journalism. Always looking, I look through, I look at journalism through through an activist lens, an organizing lens. So um, in a lot of ways it is organizing. It's organizing a story, organizing information. Um, I hope my stories have some sort of greater impact than and just merely I write it and I move on. I, you know, I hope that has a lasting impact. So that's how I approach my journalism. So I'm always, I always got a nose for stories. I'm always looking for something. I'm always, I just talked to a friend of mine today and he was telling me that the Bronx doesn't have so many trash cans. So I, I didn't ever heard that before. I don't live in the Bronx. I thought that was interesting. So I started immediately while we're talking on the phone. And he just casually just mentioned this. And I'm like, this is a story. Maybe let's see if I can prove that there's some inequality in terms of trash cans re, you know, distribution in the city. <laughs> so I'm always looking for some sort of angle. Some stories don't become stories, but I have notebooks here, just on my desk here, filled with ideas. I just not, you know, I jot it down. I don't know what the angle is, but I jot down something, and then I'll figure it out. And then I have days where I'm just on the computer researching. All I look through my notebook. Okay, I wrote so and so, so so. Okay, let me look that up. See, and then I try to find some sort of. Story. And sometimes you you got to be careful because you want to make a story fit. 
this particular angle you have. And then, you know, you could fall into that trap. But I often try to jot down as many ideas I have. And luckily, almost all, every idea I've ever had for a story has become a story. There's, so that gives me the confidence to keep pushing for more stories because I know I have a lot of good ideas. Or if a story I had, an idea I had, and I pitched it, somebody else did it, I'm always pissed off because it's very competitive and I wish I did the story. But at least I know I got a news. I, I got a nose for news. Yeah, I guess if somebody published that story, you know it was a story. I'm curious how much you've had to adapt in terms of your approach to just the evolution of a story, given the fact of the pandemic. You know, some people get upset at me, but for me, it hasn't changed because I, I, I approach it the same way. I take all the precautions necessary, but I, I from the beginning of the pandemic, because I got a lot of stories canceled, everything had to be like pandemic kind of oriented stories. Um, I saw journalists as essential workers. It was essential for us to go out. If you can do interviews over the phone, most of my interviews have been over the phone during the pandemic and stuff, but I, I approach it the same. I still go out when I can. I still want to be where the action is. So I don't necessarily, um, I do it much more cautiously and much more, um, uh, I take, I become more, uh, I take my precautions, but otherwise I feel like uh, as journalists, we're supposed to be out there. No, Klein uh, wrote the book, The Shock Doctrine about disaster capitalism. And I think a lot of that is true. I think during disasters, I think those in power try to take advantage of it uh, to suit their best interests. You know, um, Rahm Emanuel said, I'm going to paraphrase, I think he said, never let a good disaster, or a good crisis go to waste or something like of that effect. Um, so I, I believe that us, we as journalists have to be out there, especially during some of the roughest times we've probably ever faced before, to, to try to find and report the stories that matter the most to people and try to expose uh, the hypocrisy of the bureaucracy, you know, and that that's my belief that we, at times like these, journalism is more important than ever. Is it still the case that editors are mainly looking for pandemic-related stories, or has that shifted? Shifts a little bit, but now we're in the second wave, so, <laughs> so there's a second wave of pandemic stories, and I... I found that like every story was a pandemic story, even stories I was working on before, they could be a pandemic angle, right? So it was hard in the beginning, but I found a way because I believe the pandemic exposed all the problems that existed before. So with the pandemic, it gives you a, a new lens to look at the old problems, you know, like exploitation of taxi cab drivers was something happening before the pandemic. Now you could say, hey, look, now they're even suffering even more because they don't even have work. So they don't have work. Plus, they got so you can go and explore all of that other stuff. But the pandemic, the pandemic gives you an opportunity to. It gives you an easy in. Back when you were a student at Queens College and writing for QC Voices, you wrote this amazing piece about the closing of the Village Voice. It was elegiac and moving and almost lyrical in some ways, but also full of facts. It was just fantastic. I loved it at the time, and I think it would be fantastic if you read a little bit from that now. Oh, I would love to, but I, I would like to just add that the Village Voice was, for me, the most important newspaper in my life, hands down. That was the newspaper 
you know, I was in high school and, and, and out of college. I was so young with the Village Voice, my experience with the Village Voice. It was something that I read weekly. It was the only newspaper. I, I would only read the New York Times every day. I read the Village Voice every week it came out, cover to cover. I would dig through it, find things in it. It had the most interesting and innovative journalism in New York City at that time. And I, and I think since its passing, we don't have the same kind of journalism that, that you know, we really lost something with the Village Voice. So in that sense, my love for the Village Voice has completely influenced the way I write. Yeah, I remember a time when if you were a certain kind of New Yorker, you read the Village Voice every single week and you found out what was going on, what music was playing, restaurants, uh, you found your apartment that way, in addition to all the news, of course. I'm a big movie buff. And the Village Voice had the, the best film section. And not only that, you they showed you every... I love going to revival showings of movies. They, they showed you every theater, every cool art house theater, what they were showing that week. And you, I would plan my weekend based on the Village Voice. And now I've lost something. You, you, yeah, I can look in each individual website, but it was all condensed in that one beautiful newspaper, you know? Absolutely. And on that note, are you ready to read? The village is dead, and so is its voice. It's sad. It really is. For months, all of those iconic little red boxes have been either sitting empty or filled with piles of trash. For the last few months, I was in denial, but now the grief has quickly settled in. The voice is dead. This year is the first year since 1955 without any fresh print editions of the village voice. In truth, the voice for some time was nothing but an echo of its former self. For 20 years... The voice has been struggling to survive in the face of buyouts, layoffs, and of course, losing profits. It survived solely as a final remnant of a village that no longer lived. And yet, a vo vociferous echo it still was. Rarely did it fail to inspire something in its loyal readers. Like many readers, I, became, I first became aware of the voice when I was a teenager, although what initially attracted me to the voice wasn't always the most appropriate for my age. Every Wednesday, my fingertips would be black with ink as I turned on the back as I turned to the back pages of the latest issue of The Voice to conduct my weekly high school ritual of gawking at the escort ads. Our hormones raging, my friends and I would huddle in the corner of our homeroom class, salivating over the skately clad women offering such services as therapeutic massages and professional female companionship. Every so often, we would work up the nerve to call one of the numbers in the ads, only to freeze up with fear when the raspy, seductive voice of a woman would answer. In high school, everybody pretends to be having sex, but the thought of having sex is terrifying. In the back of those pages, tucked between the phone sex hotline ads, I would get, I would get most of my sex education from Dan Savage's Savage Love column. It beat the hell out of anything I learned from health class. Because of, because of this column, at the age of 16, I became my high school's equivalent to Masters and Johnson. Around 2006, at the same time, we were all freshmen in high school. The Voice was bought out by New York Times Media. Uh, excuse me, New Times Media. I'll read that slide again. Around 2006, at the same time we were all freshmen in high school, The Voice was bought out by New Times Media. Immediately, like the, like the comet that wiped out the dinosaurs, the new owners began to fire and lay off many of The Voice's longtime staff. The pages of The Voice got thinner and The Voice got weaker. Then in 2015... The voice was purchased again by Black Walnut Holdings, LLC. It was the final nail in the coffin. 
Late last year, they abruptly announced the end of the print edition of The Voice. It still exists online, however. Even so, something about print gives an urgency to the printed word that the computer screen cannot replicate. An online voice is no more than, a, than clickbait, indistinguishable from anything else. But like CBGB's before, the voice is a relic of another time. Honestly, I'm not nostalgic for it, even though I was not alive. Uh, excuse me. Honestly, I'm nostalgic for it, even though I was not alive to see its glory days. Just walking around the sanitized streets of the city, it should be easy to see why. Not one block is free from it. the tyranny of big box stores, expensive coffee shops, chain pharmacies, and banks. What the village once represented, whatever that was, is gone. Has been gone for a long time. Gentrification has cremated it. Even though the village is dead, we must be grateful that we were able to continue to hear its voice for as long as we did. It's not often that you have a chance to communicate with the dead. You've been listening to QC Pod, the podcast about all things Queens College. We're on Twitter at QC Pod and on the web at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Jason Tuga. Thanks for listening.